All right, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot, I want to say Ram, you know, Ram. He was probably tough. Um, Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Aren't you glad you're not me today reading these? Um, Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot, I'm not even going to try that one, and that person begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abihud. Abihud, Abihud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. And Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Mathen. And Mathen begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David unto the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it meets every need that we have and beyond. We recognize that it will outlive the heavens and the earth, as you said, Jesus, and we know, Lord, that you want to use your word to make us more like Christ. So help us, Lord, now to commune with you through your word. We want to be doers of your word, not just hearers only. And we, th we just thank you, Lord, that you have such great plans for these, these passages or this, these verses for us, Lord. And so we yield our hearts, Lord. We, we are teachable now. We're your servants. Speak to us. And, and help us, Lord, to live out 
the life that you've called us to live, Lord, the, the privileged life that we get to live. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm excited to start a new book. We're going to start going back through the New Testament again, Lord willing. And so we're going to be going through all four Gospels. And I wanted to give you a little um, overview of the Gospels. We're going to be looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And any good uh, preaching class or uh, book on preaching will, will tell you, or person will tell you, to keep Jesus at the center of every sermon. And I have to admit, I haven't done that as much as I should. I think every teacher could say that. So I'm very excited about looking at his life, looking at his teachings, looking at his miracles, looking at his heart, most of all, for the lost, him seeking and saving the lost. And there's so much that we can learn. We rush through things, don't we? When we read the scripture, sometimes we're just flying through it, and there's so much that we can catch. Now, obviously, we're not going to be able to look at it in ultra in-depth, but we can glean a lot of things. So I want to give you kind of an overview of the Gospels in general. And I want you to picture like an arc, you know, like a arc like that, okay? So I'm not smart enough to do PowerPoint, um, but you can picture this. And I'm going to give you a printout of all this later, so don't worry about catching every little detail. I just want to give you an overall picture of the Gospels because there are markers in the four Gospels that are common to all four of them. And you can, you can track exactly where because uh, sometimes you read the Gospels, and they're, they're, the first three are called the Synoptic Gospels, and they have similar things. They're very similar in a lot of ways. And then John's Gospel, which was written 30 to 40 years later, it, 90% of the content in the John's Gospel is unique to John's Gospel. So he must have looked at it and, and was led by the Lord to put in things that we had never heard before up to that point. Imagine, so, imagine if you were alive, I mean, you are alive today, so you have to imagine it, but let's say the Gospels were written in 1975, and you had three Gospels all this time. Now, some of you weren't born yet, some of you were just in your prime, won't mention names, uh, but I remember 1975. So anyway, and then you had these three Gospels all this time, and then all of a sudden you have an, another one now in 2015. And it had 90% of it you'd never seen before. So that's, that's I want to just give you a picture because there's this arc of Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to do it backwards so you're, the way you're looking at it, you'll see here. So it takes a lot of concentration for me to do that. So you have, you have, you have the, this, this arc here and the first third, like a third way up the arc is uh, where John the Baptist was put in prison. And really, if you look at all four Gospels, that was really the time where his public ministry went to Galilee, and his public ministry really started to take off. And it started to go up in terms of its popularity. And then it peaked, and then it went down in in the sense of popularity to all the way to the cross. And that's common to all four Gospels. At the top of this arc, there was a crisis. The crisis was when Jesus multiplied the the loaves and the fishes for the 5,000. And the, the synoptic gospels don't really get into depth, but John does. John gets into great depth in chapter 6, and he talks about, he gives a lot more detail about what happened. And, and so um, <laughs> you see this in John, it's actually, this is how you can remember it, John chapter 6, verse 66. Okay, there's no, don't 666, don't freak out, but it's a good way to, for you to remember that there was this crisis, okay? And 
He, he had people leave at that point. He had disciples leaving. It says in, verse, in John chapter 6, verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And, and, and because the crowd saw the, the multiplying of the loaves and fishes, and they weren't really in it for the Messiah. They're really in it for their own bellies. They're really in it for what God could, could provide for them. And there's a lot of people in this world today that they're, they want to add a little Jesus to their life, kind of like a rabbit's foot, for good luck. And they want to see how it'll work because they want to see what they can get from him instead of following him for who he is and that he meets their greatest need, that they're sinners that need a savior. And so at that point when he fed the 5,000 and so forth, and that wasn't counting women and children, we're told in the passage, they wanted to take, make him king by force. And that's when Jesus withdrew from them, and that's when he started saying some pretty hard things, like whoever, you know, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood and all these things. And it started to wean people out, and that's when people started leaving and not following him because they were following him. And he even says it to them, to the disciples, or actually to them, you're not following me because of me, you're following me because of the, 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 the loaves and the fishes, basically, that you had your physical needs met. So that was the crisis. So from that point on, you see, see there's three basic phases. There's the, 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 they call it the time of obscurity, the time of popularity, and the time of opposition or uh, adversity. Basically, it's broke, his ministry is broken up into thirds. So after that crisis, then he starts getting more and more opposition. The Pharisees start challenging him more. They start trying to trap him. There's more things that happen. And then this last part, right before the, the cross, right here, this last third right, uh, port, uh, part, excuse me, right there is when he um, starts to make his way towards Jerusalem. And, and in Luke, it says he steadfastly faced towards Jerusalem, and he started heading back. He made a beeline to Jerusalem. And, and he started that really in Caesarea Philippi, up in the way north part of Israel there, when he said, you know, who, who do they say that I am? And, G, and, and Peter said, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so forth. And, and, uh, and then after that, then that's when he started predicting his death. He's gonna, uh, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified and raised three days later. That's when he started revealing that. And then he started going towards Jerusalem. And then the, then the last marker, because these are markers, and again, I'll give you all of this on, you know, like a piece of paper so you can have it. The last marker that's true for all the Gospels is the last week of Christ. So because basically Matthew and Mark spend um, about a third of their content on the last week of Christ. Luke spends about 25% on the last week of Christ. And then John almost spends... 50% of his gospel on the last week of Christ. For basically from the, the uh, you know, the, the Palm Sunday all the way to the crucifixion. And he mainly, what Jesus is mainly doing during that last week is preparing his disciples for, him, for his departure and preparing them. So I wanted just to give you a quick overview of the gospels. Now, related to Matthew, Matthew is writing to Jews. It's been said that he's a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew, the, the Messiah. And, and people debate whether or not Matthew was written first before Mark, but a lot of people believe that Matthew was written first. He's writing to Jews. The theme of the book is Messiah King. So he's demonstrating to Jews that the Lord Jesus was the promised Messiah King that was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
dozens and dozens of specific prophecies were written by the prophets so that when the Messiah came, that the people of Israel and the rest of the world would not miss him. Painted a very vivid portrait in the Old Testament so that we wouldn't miss him when he came. And so that's what Matthew's working on. The key word throughout the book is the word fulfilled. You'll see a repeating little, little phrase, might be fulfilled. And we see it in our verses today. The purpose in the background is, of the book is that Matthew is creating a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament for the Jew. So the Jew can trust that all this revelation, the, the Messiah, his disciples, all those things are connected to the Old Testament. So he provides a bridge to the Old Testament. And then Matthew's emphasis is on the teaching of Christ. You see Mark focus on, you know, the power and the miracles of Christ. You see Luke uh, focus on other things. John focuses on the divinity of Christ. But, but Matthew, 60% of the book is the teaching of Christ. If you have a red-letter Bible where the, the words of Jesus are, are highlighted in red, there has more red letters in the book of Matthew than any of the other four Gospels. So it's focusing on what he said. Mark's focusing on what he did. Um, and then I forget, what, <laughs> I forget what Luke's focusing on. We'll get there. I'm only a, couple, you know, like a week ahead of you guys. Um, just kidding. But the... Uh, the, but, but John is focusing on the divinity of Christ, who he was. So that's kind of the big picture. Matthew was one of the 12. He was one of the 12. He's one of two authors of the Gospels that was one of the 12. Mark was, was referred to as John Mark. He was not one of the 12, although most people believe that almost all of his content supremely came from the Apostle Peter. But still, the actual human instrument that wrote the book, Matthew and John are the only ones that are the 12. Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. So he was a disciple of Jesus. His name was Levi. He was a Jew. He was a tax collector. The people hated tax collectors, even worse probably than they do today, if that's possible, because they considered them traitors. They worked for Rome, and, and they could keep everything after what, they, what Rome says is you're quoted. They would be able to keep so they could be rich and, we'll, and, and Matthew was rich. When he got saved, they, he came over the Lord Jesus's, or um, Jesus came over his house, I should say. Jesus didn't have a house. And, and he came over his house, and the Pharisees and tax collectors were there and challenged the Lord Jesus and so forth. So he was wealthy. So the people considered them traitors. And, and so that's kind of what Matthew's background is. One day, the Lord Jesus came to him and just said, come follow me. He got, left his tax office and went and followed the Lord Jesus and never looked back. Now, in our genealogy here, we're not going to go through extensively all these names, uh, but we're going to highlight a few. And there's three groups there, uh, as we see how it's divided up. And I want you to think of each of these people as links in a chain. I remember as a kid trying to figure out chains, you know, just cannot get it. And you guys aren't surprised by that because you know how handy I am. Uh, can I get an amen from Ken? Ken's name, amen, yeah. He's handy, or Tim. But I couldn't get chains to work. I, I, you know, and I remember someone saying that, that the chain is only as, as good as the links that hold it together. And that's what's going on here, this genealogy. Each person is a link in a chain. And they're very, very important because one of these people are missing, then the Messiah isn't, isn't uh, born. 
And, and so God arranged all of that. With his sovereignty, he arranged these people to be in the places where they were at so that they would be in this lineage and so forth. And so here Matthew is, is, is demonstrating that, th- that the Messiah actually came from somewhere, that he actually has links all the way to the very beginning, to the patriarchs and so forth, that he's not some, because it's amazing how many Jewish people today don't realize that Jesus was Jewish. You know, so that's today. Now just think about then where everybody could verify their family, everyone had recorded their lineage and so forth, and so he had to establish that there's, that this this Messiah, this Messiah King actually was the prophesied, or the one that was prophesied about uh, in the Old Testament. And so um, we start here in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's the first part of the landing, so to speak, that he's going to bridge the build. The, um, man, I can't talk today. It must be Hawaii time. Um, he wants to bridge between. So that, then he's going to connect it to the other side in the Old Testament in verse 2. So he says, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And so what we want to do is especially we want to focus on verse 2 because that's related to the whole purpose of why Matthew is writing. He's showing Jews that Jesus is the Messiah and he has to come from that line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and so forth in order to be the Messiah. And we're going to see why in a minute. In fact, I want you to turn, hold your place here, turn over to Genesis chapter 5. And I want us to connect the dots. Genesis, first book of the Bible, should be pretty easy. Genesis chapter 5. And I actually want to look at the first genealogy in the Bible that's related to Matthew. Genesis chapter 5. And I want us to read the first verse here. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Do you see any similarities between chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? It's almost exactly the same verbiage. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's exactly verbatim, the exact words. So, Matthew, I want you to put yourself in Matthew's mind. Matthew is saying, this Messiah is linked directly to the first you know, all the way back to Adam and so forth, and he's going to go down this line here. And so he's connecting the dots. And, and this genealogy in chapter 5, it's been called the genealogy of death <laughs> because there's a repeating phrase. Look at verse 5. It says, So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Chapter 5, verse 11, ends with, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. And, and then look, at there's an anomaly in verse 24. It says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's a type of the rapture. God just took Enoch. He walked with God, and he just took him. So there was an exception in there. But then he continues in verse 27. It ends with, and he died. And verse 31, and he died. So through Adam, all die. Romans chapter 5 lays this out, if you want to write that in the margin. 
because it talks about through one man sin came, but through one man life came, talking about the Lord Jesus. So there's this genealogy of death there. Matthew is linking to it, demonstrating that, that Jesus is part of this lineage here, the first genealogy, because it all goes back to Adam. Luke will go all the way back to um, as Adam as well. He goes in the opposite direction, though. So here's this genealogy. Now go over to Genesis 22, and we're going to look at connect the dots with Abraham, because we need to connect the dots with all those people quickly in verse 2 of our passage this morning. Genesis chapter 22. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And this is important in verse 18. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice the word seed there. Talking about his descendants that are going to come through his body. So when we see, and, and, and don't turn back there yet because we're not done in Genesis, but when you see him talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's talking about something very specific that the Jewish mind would know, that God has made very specific promises to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and so forth, and to David. And, and so he needs to connect the dots and show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed, that Jesus is that seed that it refers to in Galatians. Now turn over to chapter 26 of Genesis. And we're going to start to see a pattern here. Verse 2 says, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, He appeared to Isaac, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he not only uh, promised it to Abraham, he promised it to Isaac, who's listed in our genealogy. Now turn over to chapter 28, just a couple more chapters. Chapter 28. And God spoke to Jacob. Jacob had a dream, and he saw a ladder going up to heaven, and angels descending and ascending on it. It's referred to as Jacob's ladder. We see it in verse 12. Genesis 28, verse 12 says, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and of God, and the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, there's our word again, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we also see in our verse that Judah is talked about. So turn over to Genesis 49. Because remember, Jacob had 12 sons. Now, we always talk about Joseph because he was the one that God used to get the 
to save the family in, in Egypt and and then 400 years later, through Moses, came out of Egypt into the promised land. So we focus a lot on Joseph, and we should. But Judah is the one through whom the Messiah came. And it's important for us to see where God talks about that. Because Jacob is dying. He's on his deathbed. He has 12 sons. He's prophesying over each one of them. Just reminds me how we think that sometimes our kids you know, have to be the same, or they all have the same. No, they're very different. <laughs> you study Jacob's sons, you see, they're very different, very, very different. They each have a different calling and makeup. But look what he says to Judah. He prophesies about Judah in Genesis 49, verse 10. He says in verse 10 of chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The big word there, the key word in verse 10 there is the word scepter. Scepter is a symbol of a king's rule, of a royal line. So by mentioning Judah, he's referring back to, they would know this prophecy, they would know, be very familiar with it, and he's, he's showing them the biblical basis for the, the Messiah coming through <clears throat> Judah. Now lastly, let's turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because we need to cover David. Because he mentions David there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. No shame in looking at a table of contents. No condemnation for that. You need to get the little tabs. If You know, sometimes those tabs are, are helpful. Second Samuel chapter 7, now the context is that David wants to build a house for the Lord. And just like the Lord, just like how he is, he is going, you can't outgive God, you can't outgrace God. He says, no, you, David, you can't build a house for me, you can't build a temple, you're a man of war. You have blood on your hands, so to speak. But uh, I'm going to do something for you. You ever want to do something nice for someone and then they refuse and then want to do something even nicer for you? This is that, you know, times... 100 million because God says I'm going to do something for you because you've had it in your heart and notice in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7 says when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish your kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he shall be my son. And then there's a near fulfillment, the rest of the verse, that isn't applicable to the Lord Jesus. But this is establishing, and we've seen, I can turn back to Matthew 1. This is establishing the fact that Jesus comes from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. And it's very important because you can't get any more Jewish than that. You can't get any more legitimate than that. And so we have to remember that the Lord Jesus he is the Messiah. He's the promised one. If you demonstrate that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah, you've demonstrated everything. Because once you've established that Jesus is the Messiah, and, it, and that means that the word of God is true because it prophesied about the Messiah. It means that the Messiah is God because in Isaiah 9, 6, it says that he would be God, the Messiah. And God cannot lie. So everything that the Lord Jesus said would be true then. He said we're sinners and need a savior. He said he wanted to save people. And he, and he comp accomplished what was required for that by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. So that's very important. So he's reaching these Jews, and many, many Jews have come to know Christ through 
reading the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there's so many names here, but I want to focus on five other people in this genealogy, and they happen to be all women. Now, especially in this culture, they would not list women in genealogies. In fact, in Luke, Luke doesn't mention women either in his genealogy. So it's very significant that there's women here, and it's not just any women. The Lord could have used any woman, and he used many other women, obviously, in this in this genealogy that you know that um, you know that aren't named. Of course, for every you know parental situation, there's a man and a woman. Of course, so but he mentions five women, and it's interesting. Look at verse three. He says he mentions Tamar, and this is right out of Genesis chapter thirty-eight. And you may not be familiar with Tamar. It's not a pretty story. She pretends to be a prostitute, and she commits incest. So it's a horrible picture, but God doesn't hide anything. He doesn't hide our, our dirty laundry in the scriptures. He's honest and truthful with people's shortcomings. I can appreciate that. I need to see that people fail uh, in the scriptures in general. But he, he has this person that pretended to be a prostitute, committed, committed incest. It's horrible. But it's included in his genealogy. Also in verse 5, look at the name Rahab there. Many of you may remember Rahab. She actually was a prostitute. And she was rescued from Jericho. She assisted Joshua. And she was rescued. And so she wasn't just pretending. She was one. And then also we see in verse 5 again, we see Ruth. Now Ruth is a great woman, but she was a Moabite. And that was not... (laughs) kosher (laughs) to have a Moabitess in someone's lineage but God allowed that and then look at verse 6 it says and Jesse begot David the king David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah Now, now Matthew doesn't even mention her name he just says by her did you see that David the king begot Solomon by her who is the her Bathsheba. And he mentions the wife of Uriah. He didn't have to do that. Why does he do that? He's inspired by the Spirit to mention Uriah because it tells, the, I mean, almost the whole story is referenced right there in one verse. You have adultery because David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Also, you have murder because he murdered her husband to try to cover up his sin. And then you have the death of the first, his firstborn or whatever because of, because of this. Or the, you know, the, the son was, was um, allowed to die by the Lord as a you know, part, reaping what he sowed, so to speak. Um, the firstborn from them. So the big question is, and it's not in there by accident. And that's what I really want to zero in on for a moment. Why does God allow people like that in his lineage? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, any of the other people in the lineage aren't any, I mean, sin is sin. The standard is perfection. If you're short of perfection, you're a sinner. So that means we're all, we're all in the same boat. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, he, so that's the first thing. But second of all, he makes it, he, he purposely puts this in and it's, I believe it's relating to humanity. 
by saying, I relate to you. I'm allowed my lineage to pass through sinful man. And, and I want you to know that. Because obviously, uh, Matthew didn't have to be led to, to write it, even though it's true. He didn't have to be led to write it and list it, and especially list Uriah. So we have a, 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 you know, a person that pretended to be a, a prostitute, committed incest, a Canaanite prostitute, a Moabite, and then um, committed adultery, murder, and, and, and then the, the death of the firstborn. All of this in the family closet of the Messiah. So think about your lineage. You know, you think, I don't know if God can use me. Look at the background that I come from. Oh, no. Jesus had a background. He was sinless. I'm not saying he had any sin. But he had a background. He had a pedigree that wasn't something you'd be uh, proud of. And so there's so many times that we want to limit what God can do. In many different ways, we can do this in our minds. And one of the ways is our background, what we've been through, what we've experienced, how we've failed, and, and how our family has failed, and what we've been a victim to, and what they've done, and so forth, what they're known for. And we don't realize that God can change the whole trajectory of our, of our family. You know, I, was, I wasn't raised in a Christian home at all. I didn't come to know Christ until I was 20. I looked, I've just recently become friends with some of my distant cousins on Facebook, and I could have been taking the same route that they did, and my, my brothers and so forth, but God saved me. He changed the trajectory. My family isn't going that direction anymore. My grandchildren, if I live that long, and if the Lord wait, you know, doesn't rapture us first, they will have a different path, at least as an option from which to choose. So this can help us when we think, you know, can God love me? Can God accept me based on my background, based on my lineage? Would he forgive me? Can he still receive me? Even after accepting Jesus, people struggle with this. And so we have to look at what the Lord Jesus, he, what, what, what his line was, what his lineage was. And, and so God had put, made, or led Matthew to put all of that, all of that in. There's a fifth one, though. I only mentioned four. The fifth one is in verse 16. It's Mary. And her name means bitter. She was accused of adultery. She didn't commit adultery. But she was accused of adultery. And notice it says that it's the husband. or that Because this is talking about, you may ask the question, and it's a very good question. Well, this is the lineage of Joseph. So there's a disconnect there because... Joseph was not the Lord Jesus' earthly father. Why does, they, why does he go through all this trouble to list all this, this, this background and this lineage? It's because in the Jewish culture, your legal, this was the Lord Jesus' legal father. And that had significance. So he had to demonstrate that. But notice it says that it was the, the, um, the husband of Mary, of whom, and of whom is in the feminine, in the Greek of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So it goes to Joseph and stops biologically, but it doesn't stop legally. And that was important to uh, uh, the Jews. And it's interesting that in verse 16, there's, there's no begot. <laughs> there's 39 begots. 
And when it's just about going to be the 40th, it stops. It says, nope, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So those are the noteworthy ones that I wanted to focus on. Now let's get ready for Christmas. You ready for Christmas in July? People that don't go through the Bible aren't in this verse any other time but Christmas. We get to be seeing what the Lord has for us today in verse 18. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the word betrothed there. We don't have the equivalent in our culture. This is not engagement. It, it is in a sense, but it was more than that in their culture. It was actually, the, you'd have to get a divorce to break this up. They, they, they were legally married. They just hadn't, hadn't consummated the marriage physically or intimately. They'd have to wait a year for that. And so he was betrothed, she was betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, before they were intimate, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. See, there were two options in the law. One option was if you found your wife had committed adultery, you could, she could be stoned. And you remember when the Lord, the Lord Jesus' public ministry, and we'll see it later, where they bring a woman that was caught in the act of adultery before him, and they're wanting him to say it's okay to stone her, even though they probably didn't do that very often at all. And they were probably involved in that, maybe not that specific situation, but they were probably guilty. He wrote, writes on the sand, and they all start leaving one by one. They were guilty of sin. So he had, you know, she could be stoned, but also she could write, he could just write a certificate of divorce. And so that's what he has in mind. He, he wants to put her away, giving her a certificate of divorce, but secretly to try to not, you know, put her to public shame and, and quite possibly maybe to save himself from some public shame. But notice in verse 20, it says, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Now that's not by accident. And you're going to see Son of David a lot in the book of Matthew. Do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this tells us his motive or his, what was going on inside of him, that he was afraid. He was afraid of taking her because people would, it would, it would look bad on his character or it would look bad on hers. It would, it would just be a, a family um, uh, spectacle or, or a public spectacle there so he's afraid for something there and so he, um, the, um, the angel of the Lord an angel of the Lord says don't be afraid to take Mary to your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit it's talking about following through all the way through the whole process of the year and so forth don't be afraid to do that now aren't you thankful that Joseph waited he didn't just act right away and just take action. Sometimes we think that we just have two options. That's what he was looking at, two options. Most of the time we have more than two options, but many times in our minds we think we just have two options, but there was a third option we hadn't thought about in this, in this passage. He, he, God adds, it's of the Holy Spirit. It's of God. I'm in the middle of this. Sometimes in the natural we look at something and we, thought, we think there's only two options or we only there's a you know these multiple options and we don't stop to consider what God might be up to and we don't take it to prayer and at least he slept on it 
<laughs> you know? And, and now he waited and gave God an opportunity. I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but, you know, he thought about these things. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said this to him. And so he waited. So it's just a good reminder to us to, to be waiting and watchful for the Holy Spirit to be at work. So many times when we're in a trial, there's a supernatural thing that we don't see that God's doing in our lives, a bigger thing. It's usually bigger. We're focused on the small little problem, this or this, and he just does something like you do with your children. You, get their, you move their head up <laughs> so you can look at them, and you're holding their face. You know, It's like, yeah, there's something else going on besides what you think right now. And that's what God's doing, and that's what God does with us. He, if we would just wait and just don't make a, a rash decision, don't make a knee-jerk decision, wait, seek him, and look for the bigger thing that he's doing. And a lot of times, the bigger thing that he's doing comes through the word, comes through wise counsel, it comes through the gifts of the Spirit, it comes through different ways. And, and so often we get ahead of the Lord and we start making decisions because we only think we have a limited amount of decisions, but he's saying, I have a whole nother thing that's way bigger than you ever thought. And that's what happened with Joseph. Psalm 37 verse 7 tells us this, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. I can't relate to that very often. <laughs> and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. So when we see people doing really well, and, that, and they're, they're doing really well because they're not doing what's right, we shouldn't let that hurt us in terms of waiting upon the Lord and what he has for us because we're supposed to rest in him we're supposed to wait patiently for him and when people do that then the bigger picture unfolds to them like it did for Joseph and he sees oh God's at work here something much greater and 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 what I want to focus on in the verse 21 he says and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. And Joshua means God is salvation. So that's why he says, for he will save his people from, his, from their sins. Because God is salvation. That's his name. He's going to save people. And then notice in verse 22, it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled. There's our little three words. It's one of ten times in the book of Matthew. Might be fulfilled. Giving a biblical basis for what's happening. That it was prophetically promised and it's coming to pass. Which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. You can write it in your margin there. And what's interesting is that the angel is giving Joseph not just a dream. He's giving Joseph the biblical basis for the dream. And there are a lot of people that rely too much on dreams to the neglect of Scripture. Or they get off on the supernatural. They don't test the supernatural by the Scriptures. They're not grounded in the Word and they get off into error. Joseph knew Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. He knew that that was prophetic. So he, the angel very wisely gives Joseph the biblical basis for what's happening. It wasn't just a supernatural thing that he saw. 
There's, it lines up with Scripture. God had promised already. Every Jew that would be reading this would be thinking, oh, yeah, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, people criticize that prophecy and say, well, there's another Hebrew word that means virgin, and the, the word that's used there is young maiden. That can mean a virgin or just a young maiden in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. But what we have to know is, and I'm bringing this up because skeptics bring this up at times, I'm bringing this up to let you know that there was a near and a far fulfillment or, uh, of this prophecy. There was an, in Isaiah, there was a real person that, it was a double prophecy in other words. It was a prophecy related to a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And if God used the Hebrew word for virgin alone that can never be a young maiden that's not a virgin, then it couldn't be fulfilled in a dual purpose, if that makes sense. So he, Joseph doesn't just have a dream. He has a biblical basis. He has some verses. And I mentioned before, we need to test everything. What anyone says, what anyone does, miracles, whatever. It, did Jesus teach on it and practice it in the Gospels? Was it practiced in the book of Acts? And was it taught on in the, in the epistles, in the letters? If it passes that threefold test, we're on safe ground. But there's a lot of things that don't pass that test. And if it was so important, God would lay it out for us. Now notice in verse 24, it says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did, notice the word did, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she, was brought, she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. So there's a lot of people that have a dream or some kind of supernatural experience with the Lord. They may even have a biblical basis, but yet they don't ever act. How many people in this world have been called to something and they never stepped out and obeyed the Lord? A massive amount. I would say way more in that situation than doing things that God hasn't called them to do. Way more people hold back. So Joseph had this dream. He had the biblical basis, but he still had to do something. He still had to act. He still had to follow through with it, and he did. And so that's a good encouragement for us. He's an example of hearing from the Lord, having a biblical basis, and then stepping out in faith. A lot of people think that stepping out in faith is like, well, I don't know if I, God wants me to do this, so I'm just going to try it and then see what happens. Now, there is a small example of that with Jonathan. You can read that in 1 Samuel. But in general, faith is hearing God speak, I'm not saying audibly can, but to our hearts or through his word, we hear God speak, then we obey what he says, but we don't understand how necessarily he's going to do it. That's faith. It's not just hope, it's not presumption, it's not just stepping out, well, let's see. It's waiting to hear God speak and then obeying that voice by stepping out in obedience when you don't have all the answers and you don't know how it's going to happen. And that's the life of faith. That's what Joseph does. He doesn't understand how God's going to do all this, but he heard God speak. He had a dream, and he obeyed it on faith. And so that's chapter 1. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We just thank you that you were so gracious to us in supplying the Savior that you did. Thank you that we can so closely identify with him especially his lineage, Lord, because we know our hearts. We know that we're evil. We're born sinners. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to have great boldness 
and not let anything hold us back in letting you do what only you can do through our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't have a perfect pedigree. Thank you, Lord, that you led Matthew to write what he wrote so that we can have confidence in your grace. We love your grace, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.